outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today I'm speaking with Josh Miller, and we're talking all about how to find more shed antlers. Hey guys, quickly want to give you an update. Mark Kenyon here. Uh, I'm not hosting the podcast today. Tony's got it. But I wanted to give you a quick update on my Working for Wildlife tour. Now I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and now I have the full scoop, the full details for you. Here's the cliff notes if you're not familiar. I am planning on heading out across the country this year to shine a spotlight on volunteer habitat improvement opportunities. There's all sorts of conservation organizations that put on these volunteer days, asking hunters and anglers to come out and volunteer their time to work on public lands and waters. Maybe that's cleaning up a stream. Maybe that is picking up trash. Maybe that's planting trees or moving invasive species. All kinds of stuff like that is going on. And I want to help encourage more of us to get out there and help out. So I am excited to do that myself this year by going to six of these events all across the country, and I'm inviting you to join me. We've got events starting out in March, going all the way through October, and we're hitting all or at least most of the regions of the country. So here's the scoop on these events. I'm going to read you a list of these different events and what we're doing, and then I will tell you where to get more information, where to sign up. One other key note, I will have 25 t-shirts to give away at each event. The first 25 volunteers will get one of these cool new I Work for Wildlife t-shirts that I helped design with my buddy Hunter Spencer from Meat Eater. So, a little freebie. Now, the events. The first one, March 26, 2023. That's coming up here very soon. And that's going to be just outside of Boston, Massachusetts at the Martin Burns Wildlife Management Area. 
The second event is going to be April 22nd up in Kalkaska, Michigan. We'll be building brush piles for game habitat and a bunch of things in the Traverse City Forest Management Unit. Then fast forward to July 30th, 2023. We're going to be in the Panhandle National Forest in Idaho working on Aspen Stand Restoration. In August, we're going to Missouri to the BK Leach Conservation Area in collaboration with BHA. Then in September, we're going to Mississippi to the DeSoto National Forest. And in October, we're going to Kentucky in the Daniel Boone National Forest. We're going to do some very cool um, white oak acorn collection for some local reforestation projects. That's in association with the National Deer Association. So we got three events with the NDA, two events with BHA, and one event with the Michigan United Conservation Clubs. All of these events are going to be free and open to the public, and we're just looking for folks to come out, help out. And I'm excited to meet you, shake some hands, tell some stories, share pictures, and most importantly, do something good for these wild critters and places that we all enjoy so much. So that's the game plan. If you go to TheMeatEater.com and then search in the little search bar on the page for Working for Wildlife Tour, you'll see this this, uh, website I'm telling you about. It's got the full details for each one of those events. It has a photo of that T-shirt I mentioned. It has the links to register, which these organizations would like you to register just so they know how many people will be there and what they need to have prepared for that number of folks. So head over there, register, come on out. It's going to be a good time. We're going to be around a bunch of like-minded people enjoying Mother Nature and giving back in a great way. And uh, I can't wait. So hopefully we'll see you guys first up March 26th in or just outside of Boston. Sounds like a really cool wildlife management area that's uh, been worked on over the years. It supports a lot of different bird species, including some less common ones in that area, like American woodcock, ruffed grouse, blue-winged warblers, uh, all sorts of good stuff. Pheasants even. So we're going to be doing some good work out there and having a good time. And I will see you March 26th. And now... Back to the show with Tony Peterson in another episode of Wired to Hunt. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You probably know this is not the mustachioed madman Mark Kenyon, but is instead the guy who really seems to be holding the whole Wired to Hunt thing together, Tony. Mark is off on a spiritual retreat where he is learning to meditate, harness the healing power of crystals, and use astrology to connect on a deeper level with deer. Apparently, Mark is a Virgo, and since most fawns are born in May, the bucks he chases are, I guess, a Taurus. So he's got some, I don't know, dumb theory about that. Anyway, Today's guest is Josh Miller, who lives in Wisconsin and runs Riverstone Kennels. In addition to being a shed dog trainer, Josh also happens to be a super passionate whitetail hunter. This whole show is dedicated to finding antlers. It's about where to look for them, when to look for them, how to get your kids out there and excited about antlers, and even how to mix your dogs up in shed hunting if you have the desire and the right dogs, of course. Even if you're not a passionate shed hunter, I think you should give this one a listen because there's plenty of info here that should benefit all deer hunters. Josh Miller, how the hell are you, buddy? I'm great, man. How are you doing? I'm good. I 
I love talking to you, man. We got we got a lot of stuff to go through here. We are coming off of a stupid winter. You live over there in Wisconsin, just across the river from me. And it is really uh, the time where, you know, we kind of got a little bit robbed of our shed season this year, this far north, but there's still a chance to get out there and find some antlers still. Yeah, man, it, it really has been tough just because of how this winter has presented itself. Because, you know, for us, we keep a really close tab on our deer, you know, herd here on my farm. And it's something that we look forward to every single year, you know, especially because, you know, my daughter is four, uh, going on 14, you know, the way that she acts. Um, my, my son is two or two and a half rather. And so we're at a point where we really like to do this. Yeah, you know, I still like to go out and find a couple so the kids can go be successful and get into it, but they look forward to it. And now, you know, we're seeing, you know, deer dropping, and then like today, like I just literally had yesterday, uh, a one antler you know, buck that had just shed. I saw him yesterday with both sides. So I have a pretty good idea of where this thing could probably be. And we're supposed to get two feet of snow today. <laughs> you know, it's like, yep. so it really makes it tough, you know, covering those antlers up and, um, it's going to pose some challenges. So maybe it'll be a wait until some melt off and towards spring a little bit, but, um, but you're right. The winter has you know, posed some challenges. Yeah, it 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 was a tough year. I mean, it, we had such weird conditions up here with, you know, quite a bit of snow right away and then we had weird rainstorm I think back in January at some point that just a bad crust out there and then more snow and it's just one of those it's one of the years where, you know, as we get here toward the end of March, that's when you you can have those days where you find like six or eight sheds and you know it kind of makes up for the couple you'd pick up here and there throughout the season but there you know there's still a chance to get out there uh and i, and I want to talk about that but i want to get into the dog thing a little bit first we've we've done some shed dog episodes before uh so i don't want i don't want to cover it too completely here but you were kind of uh one of the pioneers of of shed dogs back back in the day you and you and doc and a few people were really pushing that message before it took off and it was everywhere yeah, you know, what's so funny about that is the first time that it kind of occurred to me that I could do this was uh, there's a big uh, state park that's by my house. And you couldn't hunt it at the time. You can now, but you couldn't at the time. So it was just a whitetail sanctuary, right? And so as I was, you know, probably like maybe like in the 18, you know, 17, 18-year-old range, uh, I had a dog named Easton uh, at the time who has you know, since passed. But uh, we did a lot together all the time right not just hunting and training wise but it was like you know anything i did easton was there and so being a very avid archery hunter very avid whitetail hunter you know shed season was something i looked forward to and i loved you know putting on those those miles with the boots on the ground finding these and the first it wasn't even an antler that that piqued my interest on this it was we were in the middle of the state park that i, I don't know how many you know, thousands of acres it is and easton comes back with a tennis ball and I'm sitting here looking around like, am I like stumbling into like, you know, where, where someone's like camped out and living in these woods? Like, what the heck's going on? Why is there a tennis ball in the middle of this whole thing? But he loved tennis balls. And he, I remember him bringing that back to me and I was looking at it going, well, if you love this and you can find this in the middle of nowhere, why couldn't you actually look for what I'm looking for? And we could both be actively hunting for these. And at the time, I didn't even really know anyone did this. I'm sure there were a lot of people that were, right? But for me, I had not heard of this. I had not, you know, researched it, hadn't gone through it. So I literally went, I was super fortunate. I had a, uh, a teacher that was in high school, one of my shop teachers, he had a deer farm. And so I just asked him, 
hey, like when these start dropping, could I pick a couple up and use them for training? He thought it was a cool idea trying to get the dog involved. Um, so I remember going out there with like rubber gloves and a Ziploc bag and trying to keep these like as fresh as I could. And man, like that's, that's just how this started. And uh, it's just kind of crazy. You know, now, I mean, there's, you know, there's different organizations that are holding events and there's people from all over the, the country that are doing this and it's really turned into a big deal. Yeah, it, it it's weird. It, it was kind of like this little underground thing for a while, and then it and then it just blew up. And it was like everywhere you look, there was pictures of shed dogs. And you know this this was back when you know magazine writing was a way bigger part of my job. And it was like everybody wanted that story on shed dogs. You know, it was like mm-hmm. oh, this is kind of like a cool new thing. And then it sort of it seemed to maybe peak a little bit, and now it's just sort of like part of dog ownership. Like you meet. You know, primarily people with retrievers, and if they love to deer hunt, there's like a decent chance they've trained their dogs to find antlers, or they've gone to somebody like you to have them trained, and it's just sort of become a part of the culture. And I think that's freaking cool. Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, so we uh, we have our online training program, Retriever Roadmap, where you know we have our you know, library and great community and all this stuff, right? But that's the one topic right now that's really coming up, or you know, these people and some of these people, you know, they they don't necessarily deer hunt, but they're looking for an off-season activity to do with their dogs, and this fits that bill this time of year. And so it's really neat how you know this can kind of provide not only you know uh, an increase in success for the people that are already out there doing it, but there's people now getting into the shed hunting that have never done it before just simply because of the dog. Yeah, I have I have mixed feelings about that because I feel like I have enough enough competition shed hunting, uh, <laughs> but I do, I do love seeing people take their dogs out. And, and, you know, try that. And I know I've had, because, you know, we'll do a lot of uh, shed dog training in the parks by my house, you know, especially in the spring and people see it and they're just like drawn to it. And if there's one category of dog owner that has unrealistic expectations of shed dogs, it's the person who's like, not, not actually a deer hunter, but they see that and they're like, I want to train my dog to do that so I can go out and find antlers too. And I'm like, man, you have no concept of of how hard that's actually going to be training the dogs. Isn't like terribly hard, but actually getting out there and finding a bunch of antlers usually is for those people. But I, I love seeing the interest anyway. Oh man. Now that's spot on too, because that's one of the things that uh, we, when we take dogs in for training for this, we're extremely selective in the people and dogs we take in for it, because there is this unrealistic expectation that, you know, like, Hey, my dog just got trained to do this. So let's go hit up the Walmart parking lot. We should find you know, a few. And you know what I mean? Like it's just yep. like it's very unrealistic. And like well, what I always tell people is that if you're going to do this, like it's not going to mean that you go from finding three a year to 83, right? Like you might go from finding three to maybe five, like you know, a yep. couple that you would have walked over. It's more about being out there with the dog and you and, and the dog having another activity to look forward to. You know, the dog's not sitting on the couch. You're not sitting on the couch. You're out there being active. But you know, you know, like you still have to be in the area that these deer are when they shed to be successful. You know, if if I go fishing in a lake that has no fish, I'm not going to catch any fish. It's the same thing. And so, you know, like if your farm or the area that you hunt, you find a lot of sheds on, well, your dog is going to have a lot of opportunities to pick them up, which means the dog is going to get really good at it. If you, if you don't find many, and your dog gets a chance to pick maybe one or two up a year, well, the dog's probably never going to be overly proficient at it. And 
quite frankly, he doesn't have the opportunity to because he's not in a target rich environment. So, you know, there, there's, it's not going to be this, you know, feast, and, you know, from famine to feast once you get a dog trained for it. But there's a lot of positives to being out there together doing it. Yeah. I mean, I was always, you know, taking my dogs out with me anyway, but I, I felt like one of the biggest benefits when I, when I trained my, you know, the first dog I trained to find him was my golden, which was three dogs ago now. And one of the things that I just loved about it was, you know, it, it, like you said, at, at that time, even shed hunting really hard, I might find six or eight in an entire winter, but I went more because she had a job, you know, like it, it was like kind of dumb, right? Like you're just like, well, it's, it's winter. I have nothing to do. I'm like, might as well take my dog out. And since my dog knows what we're looking for now, it's just more fun to go shed hunting. So I just go more and I find more antlers. But, you know, like you said, it's it's not a game changer as far as like if, if you're really obsessed with finding tons of antlers, like even the best dog out there isn't going to change your situation like a crazy amount. But it sure is just fun to have them with you. No, and isn't it amazing that the dog does that for us? And as far as like getting us out, because if you if you talk to most dog owners, let's just use waterfalling for example. If you talk to most dog owners, they'll all tell you the same thing. And I, I don't even want to go if the dog's not going. Yeah, right. And so it's just it's so interesting how you know the dog and the relationship that we have with them, how it really does it makes the experiment the experience that much richer for us to to the point that we we would say. We don't even want to go if they're not with. And so I think that's part of the reason why, you know, going out and having them with us shed hunting, it just makes it more enjoyable. I mean, they just, they're, they're lighting our lives in so many different aspects. Yeah. It's so much more fun. And it's, what's interesting. I, w- I wanted to ask you about this because I, you know, I've trained a couple of my dogs to, to find antlers and, you know, like, like my golden, she figured out she was going to get praise no matter what, if she brought me a bone. You know, like, so she would bring me all kinds of bones and sometimes antlers, sometimes not my older dog that I have now, Luna, she, if she finds an antler, she'll bring it to me. She never brings me just a random bone. And I, I always think like when we're out there, you know, cause we do a lot of late season pheasant hunting and sometimes, you know, some of these States you can hunt through January. Um, or, you know, we used to have that grouse season in, in Wisconsin that you could hunt through January and we would find antlers doing that with the dogs but when we were hunting with the dogs it was like they're not going to bring you an antler like do you and i wanted to ask you that like do your dogs if you're out hunting something and your dogs found an antler would they bring it to you matt maybe yeah but what i'm the way i see it is like okay if if you if you're hunting pheasants like you're you know, you're, you're, you're having that flaming young right like that's that's the epitome that's what i'm here for that jacks me up all of a sudden like you look at a ham sandwich, you're going, eh, not a big deal, right? You you still want that filet. And so that's what that's the way I kind of look at it there. Now you take you take the edge off that and you're like, hey, look, we're just out here hunting sheds. Now all of a sudden my keywords are different. My energy level is probably different, right? And so the dog feeds off that and goes, Okay, this is what we're doing. But if you're a shed hunting and you get into a patch of, of grouse or pheasants, like the dog is going to kick into it, right? And all of a sudden, sheds aren't going to matter. Now I'm on to this, and then they're going to have to come off that. Like, that's that genetic side, right? Like, feathers and birds, like, that is ingrained in our dog's DNA, especially if you have, you know, the right bloodlines. I mean, it's it's hard to turn that off, you know? So it's never going to be, you know, an equal, you know, uh, uh, pr- you know, prey for them to go after. But 
you know, you can still funnel that to where it's a very desirable object. Yeah. Yeah. I, they, when I'm bird hunting with my dogs, they aren't bringing me antlers, but when I'm antler hunting with my dogs and we encounter birds, then it becomes a bird hunt. Like that's right. That's they're really they're switching point. gears that way in a heartbeat. When you, when you started with Easton back in the day and, and he started bringing you some tennis balls out there and you realized you could do this. What, what since then, cause I know like, you know, people who look you up, they're going to see, you know, your kennel that you run with Whitney, your wife. And like, you're, you're so ensconced in the dog world, the, the bird dog world and train, you know, a trainer by trade, but you're a diehard bow hunter too. Like what did, what did those dogs, when you went and started doing that, what did they teach you about antlers, like shed hunting that you didn't, you didn't know before there had to be something that you picked up with after going out there with your dogs. So here's what's so interesting about being out there with, a, you know, like before and after. And this may have just come through, um, you know, a natural progression of sorts as I grew up and got older and had more experience. But what I found is that when I was shed hunting before, you know how it is, like you are glued to the ground. You know, you're scan, 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 and you're like on top of it, right? And man, like when I have the dogs out there, what I find more is like I'm finding new late season travel routes. I'm seeing, oh my gosh, like I didn't realize this, this tree was on this edge that would work great for this wind. And it's almost like a pregame prep for me too. Like I know the dogs are out there doing the work. And if we're in an area that they're probably going to pick something up, especially if I have more than one dog out there and they're covering a bunch of ground, like they're probably going to find it. They're going to probably going to pick it up, which is great. So I just get to enjoy it more. Like I don't have to be like, I'm still watching, I'm still doing my job, but I'm a little more relaxed doing it. And I, I find myself you know, seeing things I wouldn't have seen before. And I, you know, pick things out. And it's really an interesting deal because I believe firmly that this is the best scouting time of year. You know, this going into spring before we get leaves, because this is as close to it's, it's going to look like when I'm up in a tree, right? So I don't have to over trim because of foliage that is, you know, is not here or won't be there in the fall, but will be there when I'm trying to do this in August, right? So I love you know, hanging sets. I love getting set up for the year, you know, going forward this time, uh, this time of year. And so it's just one of those things that, um, I think I can kind of step back and maybe see things I was blind to otherwise. So that, that's an interesting take because I, I, you know, we just, we just did a couple episodes on winter scouting. Like I, I feel the same way. I, I've said this a million times. I think winter scouting for deer is the most important time you can spend outside of actually hunting. I think it's so valuable. It, but I've always, and I know a lot of people who are like this, where it's like, I'm either a shed hunter or I'm a winter scouter, but I'm not both. Like it just, just can't do it. And so what you're saying is when you go out there with the dogs, you have, you know, you have the confidence that if they run across one, they're going to find it. So you, you've got some, you've got some extra critters working for you there just for the sheer fact of like finding more antlers but you're also paying attention to them more because you're a dog trainer so you're watching them and you're hand signaling them and you're you're reading their body language and stuff but it also allows you the chance to sort of take a shed hunt like a what what could be a strict shed hunt and turn it into sort of a hybrid deal where you're looking for some antlers but you're also winter scouting yeah for sure i mean as, as much as i love shed hunting you know, being in the tree, that's what, that's what it's all about for me. Right. So if I can be, you know, if I can be scouting, you know, unfortunately I don't have infinite amount of time to be able to do it all. Right. So I'm trying to double duty. I think most of us probably fit in that boat, right? Like we, we always had more time to be out there and, and you know, okay, I'm going to shed hunt on this trip. And then I'm going to scout on the next one. Well, 
most of us have to try to do it all at once. And so to have the dog out there doing the work, yeah, I, I, for me anyways, it just took that little bit of edge off to where I could do both at once and be really efficient at doing both at once. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. One of the things that I think is really a, a, provides a really good lesson when you're out there with a shed dog is they will find antlers close to you that you cannot see. And I, 100%. I just think, you know, I, I talked to an uncle of mine one time and they, they have horses and he was always finding 
antlers and he you know he lives way up by ely so it's not like he's he's in a a part of the country that has a ton of deer you know i mean he's up in the north country where it's like real low density and i'm like how the hell do you find as many antlers as you do and he's like we ride horses around we're looking down on them and it, you know mm-hmm. it's so dumb but you think about that and you go man that that perspective that's a totally different way to look at it you know and when, when you're yeah. out there with a dog and you think, man, I'm a real badass shed hunter. I'm not going to miss one. And then you look over, and especially if you're in some kind of sawgrass or swamp or something, and your dog is is digging away in that that yellow grass and picks one up. It's like, man, you you might not find that antler even if you step on it. And it, and so it kind of makes you realize, like, no matter how good you are, like you're bringing your binoculars, you're slowing down, you're gonna miss antlers no matter what. And I think that lesson is really cool that dogs teach you. And the number of times that one of my dogs, I've all of a sudden just heard bone on teeth, and I'm going, I look behind, like I don't know how close I had to have stepped on that thing, but it was close, right? And I missed it. So those are the times you go, oh my gosh, like. Having the dog here really made that happen, um, but I, none of us are as good as we think we are. <laughs> you know, it's just the truth of it. I don't know, dude. I met some people in the hunting industry who think they're pretty good, man. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've met some dog trainers like that too, actually. Uh, but it, it is it's true, true, and it's it's a good reminder, I think. And and you don't need. You know, you don't have to train a shed dog to teach you this, but man, if you, you know how it is, like if you have that bedding area or you have that area off of the good food source in the winter where you're like, there's antlers there, like the deer have been there. I know they're going to be there. You think about, you walk a route through there and you go, all right, I'm coming back here in a week or two weeks or three weeks or whatever. I'm going to walk a different route. I mean, even two days later sometimes, and you just walk it in reverse, or you walk it when it's super sunny one day and there's shadows out, and the next time you walk it, it's that nice overcast day where there's no shadows. It's just like the more you're out there doing that, the more you realize like how easy it is to walk right by those antlers. Mm-hmm. No question. You know, and I, I think I think that's a good lesson for a lot of people who are you know. It, you know, kind of like we talked about with the dog owner who's like, oh, I'm going to train my poodle to go out and find shed antlers because this guy's doing it with a lab and I don't really understand what's going on. Like when you think about, you know, if you're, uh, you know, if you're shed hunting public land or, you know, some of these parks or whatever, where there are, there's high pressure, like there's a lot of people in there looking, it can feel like a lost cause. But when you know that you've walked right by antlers that are six feet away from you and you come back the other way and there they are, other people are doing the same thing. And so mm-hmm. I, I always kind of take a little hope in that. You know, I, I live in the suburbs of the Twin Cities, so I don't have a place to shed hunt that doesn't have quite a few people shed hunting it. But I find antlers every year. And it's it just like, gives me a little bit of hope. And it's something you learn with dogs, and it's something you learn just by burning, you know, some boot leather and getting out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no question. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's all about getting out there, right? It's all about putting those miles on and taking those walks. And I mean, even on some of the private farms, you know, that, that we've been on, you know, there's always going to be ones we miss. There's always going to be, you know, those deer that are holding later than others. And for me, it, it, that's what kind of keeps it exciting, right? Like I want to go back out and recheck an area, especially if it's a farm that I have, you know, a bunch of, of eyes on 
I still running cameras. I know that there's a certain deer, specific deer, especially if there's deer that I let walk. I love that because it feels like I'm now growing up with this deer. I you know, saw him at two, saw him at three, have sheds on both sides. Of course, that's the epitome is to get a mature deer, five, six years old and go harvest that deer and have years of, of antlers. I haven't done that yet, uh, but that's that's one of the goals I really, really want is to have that that growth. But you know, that's, that's kind of what keeps me going. It's like, it's, it's a grown up Easter egg hunt, right? Yep. Oh, big time. And it, you know, I, I'm glad you said that, that you haven't done that yet, because I think it's, I think it's very easy to assume, uh, that, that there's a lot of people out there who, you know, even if you're naming deer and you have a really, really good place to hunt, whether you own it or it's permission or a lease or whatever, it is not that easy to go out and find a shed and then kill the owner of that shed next year, two years or three years. It's like, it, it looks easy and probably more common because of how we were kind of fed stuff from the hunting industry, but it is really not that common out there. No, I, and I, I actually know very few people that have actually done that. And I feel like I manage my farms really tightly. Like it's a very, uh, Whitney would call it an, an obsession. Uh, and it probably is of sorts. Um, but it's something I really, really get into. And every year when you let a deer walk, you're rolling the dice. Like you are gambling because there are so many things that can happen. You know, neighbors, you know, kill the deer, um, you know, uh, hit by a car, gets disease, doesn't make it through the winter. Like there's so many things that can go on. And it, it, it is, it's so uncommon. And then you know, the way that these deer, you know, move around, you know, there's the reality is that on a piece of property, there are only so many mature deer that can call that property home, mature bucks, right? Because yeah. of how they act. And so, so you could have an older mature deer. This is where you're know, taking deer that are of the right age. It may not be the caliber you want, but because of certain reasons, like that buck that is never going to get to where you want him to be could run off that young deer coming up to that, and then all of a sudden he's gone, right? So there's a lot of things that can happen on a year-to-year basis, and that's why I think it is so difficult to find those multiple years, get that deer to the age that you want them to, and harvest that deer. It's a goal of mine. I want nothing more to make that happen, but it just seems like um, every year when I think, oh, maybe this is it, something happens. Yeah. I don't even – I have no place where that's even a possibility. I've – have one time in my life where I found an antler and then two years later I killed that buck and it was just I didn't I had no clue I kind of forgot I'd even found that antler and then I I don't remember what I was doing but I looked at it and I go man that's that's bladed up and everything just like the buck that I killed this year and then held it up there and it was just one of those lucky deals that he stuck around and I, you know, I didn't, obviously I didn't match him up or anything. I didn't find the year after, but it's pretty cool when that happens. And it, the other thing about that, you know, when you, when you talk about that and like, Oh, I want to kill a buck that's, you know, six and a half and I'd love to have match sets from, you know, the last four years or whatever, even going out and finding a match set, unless they fall right next to each other is really not that easy. No, it's not. Well, the other thing is think about, so I've read articles now on how they'll find like coyote dens that have antlers all over in them. You know, they love chewing on them. You're just like a dog, right? Like just like our domestic dogs, right? And so something like that can even happen. 
to where it doesn't even give you the opportunity to find both those. And you could you could walk your your tail off, you're not gonna find them, right? So it, it's just there's so many things. Everything has to go so right for that to happen. Um, but it still is one of those things that I, I sit and dream about, like, oh, I, I got to make this happen one year. I got to make this happen. <laughs> well, it'll happen. I, w- I was going to ask you about that with coyotes because I, I found a mule deer shed out in western North Dakota one time, and the base was was not on, like, how do I describe this? If you see, like, a a, a mouse is chewing on an antler, the rodent teeth, they're almost, like, kind of sharp. Like you took like a sharp tool to it. And if you look at how dogs chew down an antler, it's sort of like rounded off, you know, mm-hmm. like it's like gnawed off. And I found that this was years, probably 12, 13 years ago. I remember looking at it going, gosh, that's, that's super weird. It looks like a, a dog or, you know, what you'd assume is a coyote out there chewed on it. And then I remember thinking like, well, of course, <laughs> like why wouldn't they? My, if you could throw a, antler on my floor and you don't pay attention, my dogs will chew that sucker right down to a nub. Like why wouldn't mm-hmm. a coyote out there, especially a fresh one with a little blood on it, they pick that up and bring it back to their den. Of course they're going to lay down and chew on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and it's just so funny, right? Sometimes, um, you know, even if it's right in front of our face we just don't put two and two together, like, you know, our dogs are just like, you know, coyotes or I have a fox that, uh, is so awesome. He's for whatever reason has chose, that my food plot that's right out, I had a food plot that I put in right outside of our house, strictly because my kids being the ages they are, I want you know, them to get in the outdoors. I want them to be able to, you know, from the house, watch deer come in and out and, you know, hey, you know, there's a buck, you know, that's where we get in the name of the bucks. We can talk about, oh, here's, here's Ava's buck and here's Colt's buck and y'all, it, it makes it fun. It's a family thing, right? But, um, you know, like this little fox, has just decided to lay down in this food plot and sun himself. And it's like, well, he lays and acts just like the dog that's at my feet, you know, doing this. Why wouldn't he do the same kind of things like we're talking about? Yeah. Is it, is it a red fox? It is. We have a red and a gray on our farm. We see them pretty frequently. And I just absolutely love them. They, they get a pass. Like I have, one of my employees loves the coyote hunt and he's like, Oh, he's like, we should set up. I'm like, no, like, <laughs> you can shoot all the coyotes out here that you want. But I, I like seeing them. I, I know that they get into the turkey egg and everything else that I don't want, but they just like their mannerisms, how they act, the way that they kind of use the edges and cover. They're just such a cool animal to watch. I, I just get a kick out of sitting here watching them. Yeah. They're, I, I think Fox are so cool. All right. Do you think that that Fox set up shop there because the coyotes probably aren't going to hang super close to your house in the kennel and that Fox knows it? Well, what's interesting is that just like you say, we don't see coyotes from the house. We, yeah. we just don't. Um, but we'll see them all over, especially during turkey season. We see them all over the farm outside of that. And uh, I can kind of one hand the number of times that I've ever seen a coyote here. And so you, know, you think about that's the main predator that they're going to have to encounter. And if they can simply get away from it by getting close to where they're not, you know, I mean, it makes sense. Right. But yep. he, I mean, that red fox, a gray fox is every once in a while he'll be there. But what's funny to your point, uh, so the kennel, my house, my kennel sit on two different parcels, two different 40 acres of my farm and the gray fox always around the kennel, the red fox always around the house. So to your point, get where the coyotes aren't going to be. I think when you start paying attention to that stuff, so here in my neighborhood, in, in fact, I was out with my dogs 
I don't know, just a couple days ago and I looked over and there was a red fox at the park sitting there watching us from the other side of the soccer field. We have, you know, when, when, when I moved here in 2006, I did a lot of wildlife photography in the parks around here just because I had time, you know, I was a magazine writer. Like I just, I spent a lot of time watching animals and taking pictures of them. And it was, we were, we were covered in foxes here, red foxes. Mm -hmm. And then I started to see fewer of them and see way more coyotes in, in the parks. But when that started happening, we started seeing more fox in our neighborhood. And now I see, you know, we, we have a fox that lives right down the road from us. When I take my little girls out to the bus stop, we'll look down the street and that fox will walk out onto the street and sit on his haunches and watch him get on the bus, like consistently. <laughs> And, but we don't see coyotes in our neighborhood. And so I look at that and I go, these patches of, you know, of woods and fields and stuff where that are, that are the parks or the farms around here, that's probably coyote territory. And now these foxes are like, all right, I'm going to go live in these people's backyards. Cause we have all these little patches of woods that are connected in these little swamps. And so they just adapted to that. And I just think, I think seeing stuff like that is so cool. Like, I think uh, the more you're exposed to that kind of like what nature's doing to make it work, the better of a deer hunter you're going to get. Cause this, that stuff's happening all over out there. If you, if you're paying attention to it. It's such a fascinating thing to really sit back and and observe, especially when you have the the wherewithal to do what you just did, step back and look at the big picture. Right. Cause like when we're hunting, we tend to really nail down a focus on, Hey, like this, this one buck, has this one routine, right? Well, why does he have that routine? You know, what factors are making that happen? And what, and, and what, what other factors are contributing to making those factors happen? And it's a, it's a pretty, uh, pretty wild world that we live in. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wild. And it, and it kind of reminds me, you know, it, it makes you think about how much you don't know, mm. you know, like how much you don't know that's going on out there in the world. And then you think about like, a lot of the hunters out there, they're, they're not, and I like, this is going to sound shittier than I mean it, but they don't even have a clue either. Like I, I look at like the people I encounter here where I live at, that don't hunt, they don't understand animals at all. I mean, I can't tell you mm-hmm. how many times like somebody in our neighborhood or, you know, somebody that, you know, we coach their daughter in basketball or something will say, Oh, we saw a wolf in our backyard, you know, and you're mm-hmm. like, you're like, oh, I was a coyote, you know, like that, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And then you, then you deal with like the hunting space. And I had a conversation with this dude probably, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. I was at, I was at the gym, finished my workout. I'm sitting in the steam room and this guy's sitting next to me and I have a, I have a fish tattooed on my back of my shoulder, right? Like this old tattoo, whatever this, like, he looks, like, a, like a goldfish. <laughs> yeah i have a carp tattoo i'm secretly european uh it's actually Sorry, the uh the g loomis logo uh anyway it's from a from a past life of really really being into fishing but anyway this guy's like oh what does the tattoo mean i'm like it doesn't mean anything i just like to fish and so we start talking and he starts talking about deer hunting and you know so anyway, we get into it. We're, we're BS. And I say, yeah, I work for meat eater, you know? And he's like, Oh my God, we watch meat eater all the time. My kids love it. And he's like, you know, you know that the hunting public, I go, yeah, I know those guys. And he's like, man, I love watching them too. And I'm like, yeah, they know their stuff. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, you know, what's really crazy. 
He's like, I've started going out now and watching where the deer come into the fields at night. And then we go sit there. And he's like, this deer scouting that those guys are talking about on the hunting public, like that's the real deal. Mm. And I'm like, it never occurred to you to scout deer before that. But that's the reality out there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's, (laughs) there's, there's different worlds. Yeah. Well, you know, what's so interesting to me too, is especially when it comes to whitetail, right? Because it, it just seems like, especially when you live where you and I live, everybody whitetail hunts, right? It seems to me like the people, like when I perk up and I'm like, I want to, I want to listen to this person. It's, it's the people that are open about, man, like, like I don't know it all. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really interested in learning more. I'm trying to like, when, when you have people that are like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I, it, most of the time it's, you know, well, I, I go out my opening weekend of rifle season. I'm going to shoot a buck, any buck, just to say I shot a buck, shoot my doe, and I'm a big, bad hunter. It's like, well, I'm not going to learn anything from you for sure. And we probably don't have a lot in common, you know, because like for me, like I chase mature whitetails, just what I do, right? So like for me, I haven't killed a deer in the last three seasons. My last year I killed was my 190. And I had a deer that I was chasing this year that I know for a fact you ended up scoring 179 because he was killed with a rifle after I couldn't seal the deal. But like that trips my trigger. It's the experience. It's the rush. It's the cat and mouse game. That's what trips my trigger. To be honest, the shot is anticlimactic, especially afterwards. Right. But um, when people are, are open about like, man, like I just, I, I I'm learning this property and I'm like, that's, that, that just completely trips it to me because I'm like, okay, like you get it right. You know, you're not going to know it all. You know, there's a lot of things that are going to go on. Like, that's what gets me going. And it, it's interesting to me how it seems like the more humble you are with it, the more open you are and the more you actually end up knowing. Yeah. Well, right. And the more that it just gets you out there. Like the more, mm-hmm. the more you realize you don't know, the more you want to go out there and just learn. And I think, you know, I've been, I've been writing about this for some of these foundations episodes where, you know, we, the, the space that I'm in right now, you know, I'll, I'll get an assignment. It's like how to find shed antlers because there's people who are just like, I just want to walk into the woods and I want to find antlers. And like, that's a, like a segment of it. Right. But the reality is like, one of the biggest benefits to shed hunting isn't that you're going to find some antlers. That's cool. And you can learn some stuff, you know, you get proof of life and all that. What it, you know, there's like obviously positives to finding antlers, but there's a huge benefit to just being in the woods now. Like you said, you know, not, not just winter scouting, but if you're, if you're a rifle hunter and you're listening to this and you're like, you know, I, I, I go out and sit my power line or I sit my ladder stand or whatever. And I, I hope something comes by and, you know, two days into the season, you don't see any deer every single year because there's gun hunting pressure out there. Like if you're walking around now, now finding concentrations of deer, you're finding some of those places where those deer are going to hole up when there's a lot of pressure. Like it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like a direct correlation, right? Because there's going to be other factors here because it's winter. But if you find a place where, especially if there's some pressure there, where, you know, you're like, ah, I always find an antler here every winter or, you know, like it seems like the big bucks like to bed in here now, that might be a place you should really be thinking about when the pressure hits there in November 
and you're not seeing deer because there's correlations to that stuff beyond just like winter survival and surviving the gun season or whatever, you know, like it's cover usage. It's how the wind rolls through the land. There's all kinds of stuff. And the more you're out there now looking for antlers, you're exposing yourself to those spots. Right. Well, and, and if you're, especially if you're new and you're trying to learn and understand a property, a farm, an area, I mean, yeah, if you really take it back to a basic level, okay, how do I start to learn this thing? Like, yes, you're right. You know, patterns are going to change, late season, food sources, wet, like all this stuff, right? But it would be a very uh, easily digestible way to understand an area to go in there and say, hey, like, I know your bed here because right now with there being snow, I can see all the beds. Like, I can visually, okay, so this area is a bedding area. So from here, Where's the food? Here are the travel routes. And you can at least start to get an idea of what these year are going to do on this particular property. Yes, again, things might change. But if you are just looking for, I'm getting into scouting, how do I use this time of year to get a base layer foundation understanding of the area I hunt? This is a great way to do it because there's nothing that they can hide. I mean, it's very open. It's very understandable as far as what they're doing, the patterns they're doing it in, and where they're going. And of course, food source might change, right? Uh, there's a lot of things that can change. But again, if you're easing into it, it's a great time of year to take advantage of it. Yeah. Well, for sure. And it, and like you said, you know, that bed to food pattern is going to be written in the snow or written, even if you don't have snow, I mean, written in the open, the most open woods you're going to have pretty much the entire mm-hmm. year. And there's a lot to learn there. And it, one of the things, you know, you, you brought up about like bedding, I, I'm not like a huge bed hunter. Like it's, I, I'm, I'm trying to get better at it, but one of the things that I love about shed hunting, because you, you know, when you're out there looking for an antler, you're, if you see a bunch of beds or you see a big bed in a certain spot, it's, you know, it's, it's going to make you a little bit curious, right? And man, seeing, seeing like, oh, they bed on this secondary knob or this big bed tucked into this deadfall so nothing could approach from behind, you start to, start to just learn some behavior. Like there's a reason why these beds are there, or there's a reason why this lone bed is here. There's a reason why this one antler was in the middle of this patch of sumac here in March. Like this, I I think that stuff's so important and it's just, it's just kind of like a woodsmanship thing almost, I guess. Yeah, you're so right, man. There's so much that you can learn from just spending that time in the woods. And this is, this is as, as I guess, easily read that you can get this time of year. You know, it's just more difficult come spring. It's more difficult come fall. And then you don't want to get in, into these areas in the fall because you don't want to be pushing these deer around. Like this is a great time of year to do that and a great time of year to learn. Yeah, big time. When you take those those little kids out there, um, are you are you planting some sheds for them so they're always successful? Oh, every time. Yeah. <laughs> every every <laughs> time. You know, it's it's great for me because like what I'm trying to do is ease them into this through success. You know, one of the things I cannot believe, I cannot believe I ever got into hunting because I remember the first time I ever went hunting was rifle season in in Wisconsin. My dad bundled me up. He put me in a 12-foot ladder stand with a rifle and said, sit here until I come back and get you. And I literally sat there with my arms like, curled up in like uh, a fetal type position, holding that rifle, closing my eyes, waiting for my dad to come back. It was cold. It was miserable. I had no idea what I was doing. I have no idea why I like this, you know, looking back in that first experience. And so 
you know, for my kids, it's like, hey, I know the crappies are biting like crazy. We're going to go out. We're going to catch 10 of them. We're going to have a blast. And then we're going to be done with them wanting more, right? Like, I'm yeah. like, I want to build this drive. Well, it's the same thing here. Like, I'm not going to, you know, take them out, walk for a day, not find anything, let them get bored and go, dad, can we go home? Can we go back? Like, I want to, I want to really build this fire. So, uh, oh yeah. So I, I have, uh, you know, my little Easter eggs that, uh, <laughs> that I'll plant out for them so they can go find it. And of course, you know, my daughter, if, uh, if you were to ask her, she has, she has the best eyes in the family because she always sees these things first, you know? So it's, it's fun, man. It's just, this is one of those things that you, you talk about, you know, the hunting and it can be difficult at times to get the, the, the family, especially with young kids involved. This is a really easy way to get that going. And then all of a sudden you know, now you're watching deer. Well, now my, you know, my kids are understanding, Hey, you know, that deer only has one side. That means there's one out there for us to find. It's, it's really fun to see them putting all this together. Yeah, shed hunting with kids is fun. I, I shattered my uh, little girl's worldview this year because I've, I've done that their entire life is, you know, carried a backpack out there and got a little separation from them and chucked a few antlers out there. And, you know, they thought they were real badass shed hunters for a long time. <laughs> and to be fair, my one daughter has found antlers that I didn't see or I didn't plant or see like legit finds. The other one never has. And this year, cause I'm, I'm struggling with that. You know, my, my girls have been hunting in Wisconsin the last couple of years. And in the last two years, they've killed six deer, you know, and they're, they're 11. So they're like, so freaking spoiled. And I'm like, I got to mm-hmm. make this harder. And I think my one daughter is actually going to hunt with a vertical bow this year. Cause they've been hunting with a crossbow and I'm, mm-hmm. they're going to, they're going to level up and find that it's a lot harder, but with the shed thing, they were getting really cocky. So I fessed up to them. I was like, you guys know that all those sheds, except for a couple were ones that I planted or I saw first. <laughs> and <laughs> my one daughter who hasn't found one was so pissed. But what happened is this winter, she's been asking me to go more than ever. Cause she's like, I'm going to prove to you that I can find an antler on my own. And so I feel like it was a, a super lucky parenting win. Cause I didn't, I didn't know how that was going to go. Right. But now right. she's like competitive cause she knows her sister has found some and so she's like, we're, we're going, I'm going to show you. And she's pretty hard headed. So she'll, she'll find one eventually. But when I told them that they were like, you just, the look on their face, they're like, you bastard. Like they were <laughs> so convinced that they were good at shed hunting and they are absolutely not. <laughs> oh gosh. That's, that's like telling them the Santa is not real. Dude, this daughter uh, I've I've said this many times. You know, they're twins. I've got one who's she she observes everything. She notices everything. Little details in nature. She asks questions about stuff where you're like, she is into it. And the other one is so oblivious. And so this is a totally random story. But we went to I took my one daughter to Cabela's the other day, the one who actually sees details and finds antlers. I took her. We bought a bunch of fishing stuff. And she saw, I can't, I think it's called a live target or a living target that live target lures or something, but it's a, it's a spider topwater lure. So, you know, like a, like a grass frog or whatever, but it's a soft plastic, but it's a big, uh, tarantula looking spider. And she, you know, she's infatuated with it. And I was like, should we buy it and see if we can catch a smallie on it? And she's like, yeah. So I bought it and then we got home and I was like, you know, we really should use this to prank your sister. Like we should, we should plant this somewhere and scare the shit out of her. Right. So 
we put this white, it's white, tarantula looking spider on the middle of the floor in her bathroom, this little bathroom downstairs. And then all day long, we're like, oh, honey, you got to go give the dogs water. Oh, can you go get this? Can you go get that? She went into that bathroom like six times and never noticed that. So we're like, we sent her down there and we're like giggling and waiting for the screams to start. She never noticed this enormous fake spider on her floor until the other sister like took her down and basically made her look at it. And I was like, no wonder you don't find any antlers. Like no wonder, like you've never been out there and been like, Oh, there's an antler over there. Like you can't even see this on, on a wood floor that you've been two feet away from six times today. So, so disappointing. Oh, gosh. I'm a little more concerned with the, uh, the reaction that you were hoping to get out of it. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, I know it was, it was a little bit mean, but once we started going with it, we're like, we got to see this through. And cause that <laughs> daughter, if a ladybug, like lands near her, she freaks out. And so I, we knew she was going to, we knew it was going to be a good reaction. And, but it really actually wasn't because we had, we had to like put it right in her face and it just didn't work out. But I was like, I was like, here in my head, I'm like, you're never going to be a good hunter. Like, I don't know how, you, <laughs> how you're ever going to make it doing this. Like she doesn't notice anything, but maybe, maybe this year. Cause she's maybe the stubbornness, the hard headedness will, will see it through for her but I just don't know. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it will. (laughs) We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. What do people get wrong about shed hunting? Like, what do, you, what do you think people who haven't done it a lot or aren't very successful, what are they missing? I really think the biggest thing is just simply that they're not in the area the sheds are. You know, just because you had deer there in the fall does not mean that they're going to be there in the winter. And just because, you know, you have a food source doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to find something. You know, I, I know a lot of guys that are, are just walking through a property just because that's what they prop, that's the property that they have. And I totally get that, you know, but you know, it's hard to get discouraged if you're not being successful because you still have to be where the deer are, where the deer are dropping. And it's one of those things that, you know, that, like for me, I set up all of my farms so that late season, I have this time of opportunity. I make sure I've got the bedding area. I make sure I have the food and enough food for it to be late. That's a big one, right? Just because you have a food source that's, you know, productive in the fall does not mean that you're you know, quarter acre food plot is still going to be producing enough food for a deer herd you know, this time of year or that they can get to it. Right. I'm a big corn and beans guy just because of what it offers, especially like right now we're getting two feet of snow. They're still going to be able to uh, to get to that food. So there's a lot of factors, but just, you know, the, the success, it really is location. You, know, you got to be where they're going to be when they drop. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot, you know, because it's it's so common to think about that cut corn field or the cut bean field or whatever is like the place to be first. And yeah, like you could find plenty of antlers in food sources, you know, like you, you just can. But I, I also think there's sort of a, there's sort of a parallel with shed hunting where people kind of gravitate toward where they can see a lot. So you get into that open field or you get into that really nice deciduous forest without a bunch of undergrowth and you look around. And I know for me, especially here, you know, close to my house, the antlers I find are almost always like on the edge of a cattail slough or in some kind of overgrown thicket or something. Like they're very rarely in the nice open spots and the places where it's like comfortable to walk. And it's like, it always feels to me kind of like a public land whitetail hunt where I'm like, I'm never going to kill one on a field edge on public land. You know, like they're always going to be in the thickest shit they can get into or some creek bottom or something. And antlers, to me, at least where where I'm shed hunting, it feels like a lot of times those places where they're going to go 
you know, they're going to bed down in the day, so they're spending quite a bit of time there, and they might be browsing around at last light or first light, but sort of concentrated movement in that in the thicker stuff is where I tend to find a lot of antlers and not very often do I find them out in the nice wide open, uh, where I'd like to. Yeah. Bedding grasses, man. Like those, those are our hotbeds for me just because like you said, bedding is where they're going to spend the majority of their time this time of year. They want to conserve calories. They want to conserve energy. They're going to be hanging you know, in, in those, especially for us, you know, these grass areas, it's, it's buffers from wind. You know, they can get down there and they can stay warm. They can stay hidden. That is where we're really successful. But that's also where the dogs come into play probably the most handy because in those wide open you know, canopy bottoms, in those food plots, you can see, you know. So, yeah, you could lead the dog into it, let the dog pick it up and have fun doing a teamwork thing. But the dogs that when they surprise you with one, to me, it, it tends to be in those bedding grasses. Yeah. Oh man, me too. And it also in those places where, you know, you get into like a, I don't know, a thicket of prickly ash or something where like you're just naturally kind of going where you can stand up the most and walk and a dog can just zip through that cover. You know, I mean, obviously your dog's not quite as tall as a deer, but they're closer together than, you know, we are to a lot of the deer, right? Or, you know, I mean, it's, they can slip through the cover in a way that deer can as well. And it just feels like a lot of times, you know, kind of like when you're grouse hunting in the woods, like you're like, I want to, I want to pick a spot where I'm standing up so I can get a shot. And those dogs are going all over through that cover that you don't want to go into. If they're, if they're good dogs, same thing happens when you're shed hunting. Right. For sure. For sure. Now, what, what else are people missing here, man? What, what have we not covered? Do you have like a, uh, you know, favorite conditions to shed hunt in like lighting conditions or anything like that? Well, you know, for, for me, it just seems like there's certain days, you know, for me, the, the best days are the days that I get out to do it, <laughs> right? Like yep. whatever day I can get out there is, is best. But, um, you know, like for the, the bright days for me, if there's snow on the ground, you know, it always gets a little tougher just because, you know, your eyes are always trying to, to, you know, get off that, that fixation of bright, bright, bright. You know, just like today, you know, I'm on the tractor moving snow for three hours and my eyes just hurt right? Cause they're just so, you know, you get wore out, just kind of focusing the, the whole time. Um, but there's not really anything, you know, for me that way, it's just a matter of, of when can I get out? And you know, I just, I like to let this snow kind of subside a little bit, especially in a situation like we have now, because you know, like, I still have deer that are holding. I don't want to blow them out and, you know, get their routine kind of off. Cause I know what they're doing at the same side. I've got deer that have dropped that are really kind of antsy and anxious. Like they want to get out there. So if I'm going to err on a side, I'm going to err on late, let everything drop, let everything be comfortable. Because a big part of this to me too is, you know, the deer have their routine here for a reason. You know, I think just out West, I can't remember if it was Utah or Colorado, like they just, you know, banned shed hunting for the foreseeable future. Not that they won't open it up this year, but it's because the winter has been so tough that the deer are doing what they're doing for a reason. That's how they're living. And so the more that you go in and blow them out and get to the point they're not comfortable, get to the point that they're not you know, safe from what they feel like, and like you're doing your herd a disservice. Yep. All right, so I like to let them have that time, let them have that comfortability, let them get their routine, let them get through the winter, and then I'm going to go in and try to, you know, try to do what I want to do, right? But I really try to be, be very, very selective um, in what I'm doing. And you know, from a weather standpoint, I guess the one thing I do keep track of is if I'm going into – either a big storm like we are now 
or I'm going into a real cold stretch that I know the deer are going to have to be feeding. I do try not to bugger them up too much, you know, during that time, because that's, again, the, at the end of the day, the whole reason I'm doing this is because I care about, you know, my deer herd. I want, you know, to watch them progress. I want them, you know, to see them, um, keep, you know, growing and improving. Well, I'm not going to do that if I, if I make it to where they're having a more difficult time surviving than what it already is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrestle with that too. And I've, I've gotten to the point in my life where if it's, if it's bad conditions for them, I just don't go, I just wait. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, part of that might be just because I, I tend to have better shed hunts in March anyway. Uh, you know, I mean, like you, I've, I've seen deer, you know, we saw a, uh, a really good one still holding, um, you know, back there toward the end of February. And, you know, we, I used to find a fair amount of big ones early and that seems to have leveled off a little bit for me, probably because I don't go as much, but it just seems like, man, you're, you're starting to get those rough conditions where they're really struggling. It's just not worth it to go push them around. It's just not a good Mm -hmm. thing. And then, you know, by the time you get, you know, I usually figure like the third or third week of February, a lot of the antlers are on the ground, not all of them, but you start getting into March, mid-March and late March. And it's like, that's the time when you're going to go out and it's just like, it's going to be kind of all or nothing. Like you, you're going to have the right conditions. You're going to get those overcast days. Um, if you're dealing with snow, it's eventually hopefully going to be gone. And you just get those conditions where it's like, even though you got cheated out of a bunch of the earlier shed hunting, that's when you can cover serious miles. Plus the weather's, you know, like really kind of catered toward walking a lot. And I just love that, man. Like I, I love that time frame where it's like, you, you know, your odds are as good then as any time you're going to go shed hunting at any point. That's right. Yeah. That, that's probably one of my favorite times too. Um, let's, let's wrap this up. Talk about dogs a little bit more. What, what do you tell people? Cause I know you probably get, 7,000 emails and DMs a week on like, Hey, I want a shed dog, but I don't want this dog or I don't want that. Or I don't want a high drive or I don't want a low drive. What do you, what do you tell people generally if they're thinking about getting a dog for shed hunting? Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, just like anything, you you have to have the right dog, you know, just like a basketball coach, you know, if if a kid's going to be an all-star, he's got to be the right kid, right? Like even with the best coaching, the best facilities, the best everything, if they're not right, they don't have it you're not going to go be successful with it. So, you know, for us, uh, retrieve drive is the number one thing because you, know, you think about it. So we talked about birds versus sheds earlier, right? So like birds, there's a lot of genetic DNA inside most of these dogs that say, Hey, I want to do this, but that's a warm smelling, moving, you know, predator prey, you know, type of situation bird versus a cold, hard, stationary, less than exciting, antler that's laying on the ground and so you know just like going back to that first story with easton of why he wanted that so bad was just simply because you know, he had the retrieve drive but i funneled it into a tennis ball because for at the time they were cheap and easy to throw and you know cheap was a big deal for me when i was 17 years old like i needed anything that i could that i could afford and so it was tennis balls tennis balls tennis balls well that's why he found a tennis ball in the middle of nowhere because he loved it that much and so what we then do is we take these dogs with these high retrieve drives and we funnel it into this object in a shed that this is what we want this, this, you know, funneled into. And the one question we always get is, can my dog be a bird dog and a shed hunting dog? And quite frankly, I think the best dogs tend to be both, right? Because they, it's like they get that, that 
you know, natural side oozing out of them through the birds that's bred into them, that's there. And then you can just take this drive and this, this athleticism and this desire. And now it's like, all right, so here's this off season, you know, funnel that we're going to now go try to accomplish this. And so you can absolutely do it with both, but you have to get the right dog to start with. And that really all comes down to retrieve desire. So you get a non-retrieving breed, you're probably not going to be as successful at this. Of course, there's always exceptions to this rule. But if you're like, hey, I want to put my, the odds in my favor that I can go get a dog that's good at this, is getting a very highly you know, retrieve-driven you know, dog and breed. Yeah, and we, and we should break that down a little bit because you know people might be listening to this and going, oh, I can just go get a golden retriever and it's going to be a shed dog because it's got retriever in the name. And it's mm-hmm. like the the level of retrieving desire you need – in a dog and and that you need to foster in a dog. I mean, it's got to be there naturally and you got to work to bring it out, but to get them to be excited enough about something that isn't a bird or isn't a ball, like it's, it's not that easy. It's not as easy as it sounds like it's not inherent in them. And so you're talking about dogs that are really well-bred. You're talking about dogs, like the dogs you work with and you guys are breeding and you know, a lot of them you're training, those bloodlines are, super legit and so you know you're starting with the right pieces there on an awful lot of those dogs where that retrieving desire it's not going to be just like the dog that if you throw a tennis ball in your yard it's going to go get it and bring it back and spit it at your feet it's the dog that's carrying something around in its mouth you know from puppyhood on all the time and bringing you sticks and bringing you everything because the off chance that you might just throw something for it like the dog that lives for that because it's it's not it's it's a weird ask to get them to go get antlers, especially when you're out there for three hours and they haven't found one, or you're on you know two days of shed hunting. You know if you if you haven't planted a couple, like to keep a dog that's like gonna stay in the game there, they have to want that so bad. Yeah, you're right. You know, just just simply being a retrieving breed doesn't necessarily cut it in this case because if they don't have that extra level, everything you're talking about, right? Like it, the natural want to have something in my mouth, whether that's a slipper, whether that's a shoe, whether that's a sock, whether that's like these dogs. Yeah, and and the thing is, that I always think it's funny is that a lot of times people pick up a seven eight week old puppy, bring them home, be like, oh, we're training on retrieving. It's like, well, if that if that puppy was bred to retrieve. The only reason you bring home a eight week old puppy and throw a retrieve forward is to validate to yourself that you did indeed buy a retriever. Like that's that's bred into them. When you throw something, they'll go get it, not because they've been taught to do it, but because something inside of them says, This is what I'm supposed to do. Right. And and that is something that, quite frankly, not every breed, like just because you know someone is breeding dogs, doesn't not doesn't mean that they have a true knowledge or a true intent of why they are doing it. And so I think it's even more important, like if this is your number one goal to have a shed hunting dog, I think it is even more imperative that you take your time and get a very well-bred dog that has a natural mouth and natural retrieve in mind that you can funnel to this. Because if they're, done, if they're not going to have it, like if they don't want to do it, you're not going to teach them to want to do it. They have to have that from the get-go. Yeah. And there's, there's kind of a misperception out there. And I, I know you've dealt with this a lot because you, you specialize in, in British labs and there's the, you know, the stereotypes around them and there's the stereotypes around the, the American labs. And the reality is, is like 
people look at it and go, well, I don't want a high drive dog, but I want a dog to do this and do that and do this and do that. And they're like, well, I want, I want the calm dog at home and the dog that's going to be nuts in the pheasant field or never stop looking for antlers the minute we get out of the truck. It's like, you don't, you, you kind of don't understand what you're asking there. Like you, Mm -hmm. if you want that high retrieving desire, you're going to have somewhat of a high drive dog. Like they just, mm-hmm. you can't divorce the two and it's, it, you're not going to get this magical dog that just comes out of the package and it's, you know, a sloth at home and this fiery beast out in the field. Like it's just, it's not really how it shakes out with real dogs. Yeah. Well, the the other thing too, is that, yeah, I think that we, we have now titled quote unquote drive in a way that we can manipulate that meaning to what fits us. Right. So what I mean by that is that, um, you have a dog that is in a duck blind and is sitting there and the whole time just sitting there whining all jacked up like people go oh he's just so driven well like i i have i'm literally looking at right now one two three four five six seven seven master hunter hunter retriever champions have all the talent in the world i don't think you've heard a single peep out of them in the background they won't make a single noise they have all the drive in the world they have all the desire to go do this but they're under control, right? Like, so there's, there's a difference there in drive and control. And so, yeah, like you're right. Like the hard part is like, you can't be like, well, I want, I want, uh, you know, a vehicle that's a Lamborghini when I want a Lamborghini and a super duty when I want a super duty and a school bus when I want school, like, you know, like you really have to be honest with yourself. Okay. What do I want? What do I need? And then from there, it's all about finding the right breeder. If you can find the right breeder that can, can connect those dots for you, someone that you can trust, you will get that right dog. Yeah. But it does take that. You're not going to open up the newspaper and say, hey, Farmer John had a you know, litter of puppies and you know, sell them for 100 bucks each. Like You could. Don't get me wrong. You could. But again, we're talking about how do you put the odds in your favor. That's not how you do it. Yeah. I wish, I wish we could talk about this for another seven hours or meat eater would just let me do a freaking dog podcast, but they won't. Uh, but I, I want, <laughs> but anybody who's listening to this wants to tell them they should, they should, you know, wants to let me know that we should have a dog podcast. Please, please reach out to them and tell them. Uh, what I want to say on that is there, there's this kind of idea that you're talking about, right? Like, you know, if you, if you want that component, if you want that high retrieving desire, there's a way to get it. And it's going to be in the bloodlines and the pedigrees. Like it, 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 that's it. Like you're, you could get lucky and come across it, but you're not consistently going to get that in any other way. Like you have to know that. And people get hesitant on that. And I, and I get it, you know, not everybody's looking for a dog to do the same things you and I are, but when you look at a dog that has, that has been bred to retrieve, like that's really going to be one that's like, I'm going to go get that bumper 5,000 times in a row. If you throw it 5,000 times, a lot of people look at that as a negative, but I look at it, it not being a professional trainer like you, I go, man, there's my dog's reward its entire life. And if I know mm-hmm. what my dog's reward is, I know how to train my dog to do all kinds of stuff that benefits me as a bird hunter, as a shed hunter, as somebody who just wants control of my dog and a you know, different environments at home and parks, whatever that aspect of, of retrievers 
like the high drive, high retrieving desire thing, that is so fun to work with and can actually, even though it sounds like it's a pain in the ass, can actually make the process of developing a dog so much easier. Oh man. Like there, there isn't a single guy playing in the NBA that didn't love basketball growing up. Right. And quite frankly, there's probably a bunch of very, very talented players that never made it that far because they didn't have that desire, right? Like they, that, that's one thing you cannot teach. And so, you know, the, the desire is such a big piece of this that, you know, it, it, and it's something that, again, I go back to the breeding because that's what it's all about. Like you have to get with the breeder that truly has a why, like, why are they doing this? And why are they breeding the dogs that they have? Like, I, I truly believe most breeders out there are breeding the dogs that they're breeding because those are the dogs that they have, right? And they can make a sales pitch around it all that they want, but that's why they're breeding those dogs. And so it's like, for me, like I want to find a breeder that is doing things for a reason, that has a process, that's being selective, because if they've done all that work for me, now it's way less for me to have to do. Now I can just trust what they're doing. They, they are on the same wavelength as I am, same thought process. Look, they know what I'm looking for. I trust them. I'm going to get the right dog. Once you have the right dog, it is all about the situations that you put that dog into. So yeah, it's on you from there. But if you have the right dog, it's going to be possible. If you don't, it's, it's just not. I don't care how much time you put into it. I don't know how much you know. Don't care how much time or how much work you put into it. It's never going to work out like what you want if the dog doesn't want to go do it. Big time, big time. If you if you want a good way to sort of guide you on this a little bit. You think about the average dog buying process. If you if you go look up whatever, you know, you want you want a black lab, you want a yellow lab, whatever, I don't care what color it is. You want a lab. And you're like, I'm you could go find that. You could find litters of labs everywhere. But when you start talking to breeders, if if you're the only one asking questions, if they're like, We'll sell you this dog because we got a litter coming up, and they don't ask you, like, what are you gonna do with it? What's your experience with dogs? Like you know, do you pheasant hunt? Do you grouse hunt? What, what do you do? Okay. You're probably not talking to somebody who's breeding a dog for high drive and sort of specific standards that way. But if you go to somebody and you're like, hey, I want to buy one of your dogs and they're like, okay, I got a bunch of questions for you. Then you okay. might start to be on the right track because those are people who don't want to place a dog that's been bred really well for certain tasks with somebody who's not going to let that dog do that and, and encourage that. That's right. That's probably the number one uh, piece of feedback that I get when people go through our puppy process and get a puppy from us is, oh my gosh, you guys were so thorough. And when they ever followed it up with, you know, how do you go about that or why do you go about that? The way I, I say it is, look, I am all about, you know, my customer experience. I know it's weird to kind of say, you know, from a dog standpoint, because we don't look at our, at these puppies as, you know, products, right? But the reality is I run my business like a business, not as a hobby. And so when I look at that, I go, okay, my customer experience is all about them getting the right dog, right? Like if I get the wrong dog, it doesn't matter how well it's bred. It doesn't matter how healthy it is. It doesn't matter. Like if it's not the right fit, like the dog could be great. The people could be great, but just not the right fit for each other. The customer experience is not going to be a positive one. And so that's why we are so over the top, and so thorough on that process, because I feel like that's our job you know, in this. And of course, you know, you could always find a situation where it doesn't work out, but it's amazing how often we get an you know, email you know, a year later going, I cannot believe you picked the absolute right dog for us. Well, there, it wasn't by accident. Yep. 
Yep. I love it, buddy. Where can people find you out there? Because uh, everybody listening to this wants a puppy now. Uh, so <laughs> so where right. can they go? Right. So Riverstone Kennels, you can find us uh, uh, either on the web, www.riverstonekennels.com. Uh, find us on Facebook, on Instagram. We do a lot on there. You can also find us on YouTube as we're uh, doing more content on there, showing our hunts, showing some of the, the day-to-day with the training. Um, and if anyone's out there looking to train their own dog, uh, www.retrieverroadmap.com is a huge video library that I've put together over years and years and years. And it's all about giving you a lot of different options of how to train your dog at home to be successful. And what's so cool about that is a community that's kind of come from that. Of, you know, people are getting together training, people are helping each other out with different situations. It's really, really a neat thing. So that is a uh, retriever roadmap. Awesome. Love it, buddy. Thank you so much for coming on, man. You bet, you bet, pal. Anytime. You guys have a, a great rest of the winter and uh, go find some more sheds with those girls. We will, buddy. That's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for some more whitetail goodness. This has been the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you're looking for more whitetail content, you can head on over to our YouTube channel to check out our weekly how-to content, or you can go to TheMeatEater.com slash Wired and read articles by Mark, myself, uh, Alex Gilstrom, Bo Martonic, a whole bunch of absolute whitetail killers. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.